Hello and welcome to Smith and Sheridan on Biotech, a podcast on the science and business of biotechnology, presented by me, Cormac Sheridan. And me, Andy Smith. Hello, Cormac. Hello, everyone. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Good. We're going to talk this week about a UK approval. Let's give them the headline that they wanted. In a world first for sickle cell disease patients, the UK medical regulator has approved a gene editing therapy for patients with sickle cell disease. It's called Hasgavy or Exagamglogene Autotemcel. I do not know how people come up with these names. Let's just call it Exocell for the sake of convenience. That's how it's kind of most widely known. It's been approved both for patients with beta thalassemia and with sickle cell disease, both conditions involving mutations in the alpha chain of hemoglobin, the oxygen-carrying protein that is responsible for ferrying oxygen to the tissues all over our body, which enables respiration, that is the process by which the energy present in our food is broken down and captured in a form that's usable by the cell in the form of ATP. That's just a quick little spurt through undergraduate biochemistry. The knock-on effects of mutations in the alpha-globin chain of hemoglobin are devastating for those with this condition, especially with sickle cell disease. There are some drugs, hydroxyurea being a case in point, that have become major backbones of therapy and can reduce the intensity of the disease, but it's still awful. The sickling shape that's characteristic of the hemoglobin proteins and of the red blood cells that carry it, they adhere to each other in these rigid polymers. They cause the cells to clump and adhere to the walls of small blood vessels. They cause blockages. It's kind of like being at risk of major or mini strokes all the time. And yet, this is a, a key moment in the history of biotechnology. It's a major milestone in the development of genetic medicines. And yet, and yet, and yet, there are reasons to celebrate here without a doubt, but we really have to sort of look at the wider picture, don't we? Yeah, I agree with you, Cormac. It, it is a reason to celebrate. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing's potential therapies have, have not been around for that long. You know, gene therapy is, and CAR-T, cellular therapies we talked about last week, have been around for much, much longer. Yet, perhaps it's their potential to actually revolutionize the diseases that they're aimed to treat. They've leapfrogged possibly over you know, regulatory hurdles. But saying that, it's early days for this. And saying that as well, this worldwide first gene editing therapy was approved in the UK. And the UK is not known to be the world's most generous market in terms of reimbursing drugs. And also it's by the MHRA, the UK Medicines Health Authority, which has a patchy history. I mean, they they also were the first regulator in the world to approve a COVID-19 vaccine. That was the AstraZeneca vaccine. And to me, it struck me as being a bit like a political propaganda that we were first to do this. We were first to do that. Yeah, Which is it, fine. It's, it's one of the benefits of Brexit, <laughs> one of the few that they can decide to move at their own pace rather than the pace of the European Medicines Agency. Well, it, it's and still it, not a benefit if the drug doesn't turn out to be 
yeah. safe, effective, or even reimbursed. And, and that's yeah. the important aspect. So the reimbursement decision, getting paid for it in the UK, is not down to the MHRA. It's down to National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which decides you know, the cost effectiveness on the basis of their review of the clinical studies and what everyone else is doing. So they decide how much the NHS is going to pay for these gene editing therapies. And as I said, they're not the most generous of reimbursers in, in the they're world. They're not. And at the same time, too, though, I think that however they decide to price it outside of the USA and the US pricing negotiation, as we've discussed before, will be a completely different uh, kettle of fish the dynamics are so different over there. But I think, though, this cannot, Vertex can't allow this to be a commercial failure. Bluebird Bio had a, a product on the market. It got approval in Europe for beta thalassemia mm. way back in 2019. This is um, Cell. I'm not going to give it the full pronunciation. And they got the EU approval in, in 2019. They couldn't get reimbursement in Europe for the price they're looking for, which I think was in excess of $2 million. They withdrew that approval uh, in March 2022. And this can't happen with the first gene editing therapy because it will signal that these things may work in the clinic, but they're not going to deliver for patients. And why did we waste all our time and energy giving them all this attention? Why did patients bother going on clinical trials? Well, hopefully they obviously benefited, but so well, I, I think it's broader than that, Cormac. Whether this first approved gene editing product is a commercial success or not will be decided, and I'm sorry to anyone in the UK who's thinking that they're the centre of the world in terms of drug development and reimbursement, won't be dependent on whatever happens in the UK. And yeah. we saw that with Vertex before when they went through an acrimonious period of years in the UK not being able to agree a price for their cystic fibrosis. Small molecule drugs with NICE, despite them being approved across Europe and re-improved and reimbursed in the US. So whatever happens in the UK, it's a minor sideshow to the ultimate success of of these products. And we also, before we jump ahead of ourselves and talking about whether or not it's going to be a commercial success, we really do have to focus too on whether it's going to be a clinical success. Yeah. Because so far, you can make the argument that it is an outstanding clinical success, but that is only... And scientific success. I mean, the the Nobel Prize was awarded for this stuff, right? In a shorter time, it will take to get reimbursed in the UK. The whole innovation cycle has been extraordinarily rapid in this case, which I, I think is kudos to everybody involved. Absolutely no doubt about that. But the approval in the UK and the presumed approval, which is due to happen by the December the 8th um, in the USA. Presumably the FDA is going to approve it on the basis of the recent advisory committee hearings. They didn't even call a vote. They are very enthusiastic about it. But the approval will be on the basis of its ability to stop the occurrence of acute vasoacclusive crises, which are these blockages in blood vessels that can be excruciatingly painful and can require hospitalization several times a year. But in addition to those acute crises, patients also suffer constant ongoing minor organ damage that eventually becomes major organ damage. And that actually very often is what kills them. It's either that or a stroke. And we don't know yet because we just don't have the follow-up data whether the short-term effects that we're seeing 
will also convert to these long-term effects because the strange and interesting feature of sickle cell disease is that even though it's inherited on an autosomal recessive basis, that means each of your parents has to carry at least one of the faulty genes and you have a one in four chance of being born with two copies of the faulty genes and no copy of the healthy gene. But even so, normally a autosomal recessive mode of inheritance results in an absence of an important mm. protein, which you can then supply by gene therapy or by other means to make up for the deficit. Whereas with sickle cell disease, you not only have the absence of this doing what it's supposed to do, it does it to an extent, obviously, but you also have this toxic gain of function, mm. which is almost like a sort of an autosomal dominant mode of inheritance. You have this protein and the proteins only form these rigid polymers these aggregates when they're not bound to oxygen. So when oxygen is present, they function okay. So this is sort of a, a cycling between the two states in terms of the damaged protein. So the patients who have received exocell, they still actually are producing sickling hemoglobin 2. I mean, just for the sake of argument, we haven't got into it here. The mechanism by which exocell works is that you're not switching off the sickling hemoglobin. You're switching back on a form of hemoglobin that functions to carry oxygen during embryonic development. It's called fetal hemoglobin because that doesn't carry the alpha globin chains that are mutated in sickle cell disease because fetal hemoglobin contains two copies of the gamma globin chain, which is not present at all in adult hemoglobin, and two copies of the beta globin chain. Sorry, it's alpha and getting myself confused. Fetal carries contains two alpha and two gamma chains. That's it. So you're you're switching something back on, and that substitutes for the loss of adult hemoglobin function, but you still have that sickling activity. And whether or not the fetal hemoglobin can overcome the sickling hemoglobin, I think if it's 30% of the total hemoglobin in the cell is fetal hemoglobin, that's regarded as a protective threshold. And so not all cells will necessarily attain that protective threshold. So there's there's all these kind of caveats and question marks, which we'll only learn the answers to when we see more clinical data. And that's just a function of time. And it is interesting if you think, I mean, let's go back to, to what we started off with. This is fantastic that you can actually correct a gene, not just correct a mutation, but actually correct a state, a disease state from one or two base pair changes in gene editing. On the other hand, sickle cell disease is a range of clinical manifestations depending on the mutations. So patients can range from being largely symptomatic to having few vaso-occlusive crises a year. And this is where the UK approval comes into to play and it's, it's only been approved for those with severe sickle cell disease so not everyone who has sickle cell disease will need it or get it but it, it, i mean it, it is an interesting indication to go for first and hats off the vertex and CRISPR for doing that because there is no effective therapy there is only symptomatic therapy you think of beta thalassemia there's a potential for a hemopoietic stem cell transplant but most patients with sickle cell disease, it is potentially debilitating and fatal, as you say. And that fatality aspect or that longevity aspect is what we don't know yet. Now, what are the effects of having fetal hemoglobin when it's supposed to be switched off at birth years ago? What's the effects of having both normal and sickleated cells in your body 
and the different types of hemoglobin. And this is where we are with the payers. They'll be saying, so what are the long-term effects of this? And, 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 and we also and we need to... And the, the, the big, big theoretical or academic objection, or concern at least, that was raised during the development of all CRISPR-Cas9-based gene editing therapies was the, the potential for genotoxic effects that could give rise to cancer. Because, again, for people who are not terribly familiar with how CRISPR-Cas9 works, you basically cut the DNA, you insert a little correction, or depending, and you here you're actually just disrupting a particular genetic locus. You're not actually adding anything that correct an existing. But that was the earliest scare stories around gene editing that you would get what's called off-target mutations. Yeah. You know, so, something very similar, not yeah. homologous, but similar elsewhere would get the same effect, and it would be deleterious to the organism. And yeah, you know, you're talking to someone now who grew up as a scientist sticking genes into fungi and seeing what effect they did, you know, uh, multiple times, multiple insertions. Sometimes they were fine. But mm. many times, if you put enough in, they go anywhere and they yeah. cause all sorts of problems. And, it, and that's what the original concern is. And it was to the benefit of the FDA advisory committee. It was discussed at the advisory committee meeting. But I think at the end of the day, we just don't know yet, do we? Yeah. And perfection is the enemy of good or even excellence in this case. Yeah. So I think people are willing to take the risk because the obviously risks from the disease are much, much higher, it looks like, than the risks of target or other forms of... of and, and the whole risk-benefit equation of these advanced therapies took another turn for the worst. You remember last week we talked about CAR T-cell therapies. And there was the FDA reviewing a limited number of cases of T-cell lymphomas among patients having received CAR T-cell therapies. But unless the safety database is big enough yeah. you just don't know what the ultimate safety profile is i mean that's the one good thing about the astrazeneca and the uh, moderna covid 19 vaccines the lipid nanoparticle delivery they've been in billions of patients now so yeah. it's pretty well known what the safety database is. if you have a, a rare disease which only a few patients or a small number of patients will be treated like sickle cell disease then the safety profile won't be known for years also, and another big obstacle in terms of getting this therapy out to patients is the very limited healthcare infrastructure available in which to actually administer this therapy, because yeah. it's essentially the same as a bone marrow transplant. And because people with sickle cell disease especially have such damaged hematopoietic systems, or hematopoiesis, or hematopoietic, hematopoietic. Yes, I'm getting myself all jumbled up in knots. Their ability to make blood has been compromised by the fact that the sickling red blood cells die more quickly. So the bone marrow is constantly churning out red blood cells and it becomes damaged and stressed. And that in itself is a risk as well for, for certain forms of cancer. But anyway, because the patients are so ill in that respect, administering to them the equivalent of a bone marrow transplant, and the idea being here is that you have to ablate the existing uh, bone marrow to make room for the cells that have been treated and put back into the patients. Even though it's their own patient's own cells, there isn't room for them, put it in crude terms, in the bone marrow compartment. And you have to make that room by wiping out what's already there with the combination of radiation and chemotherapy drugs. So that conditioning regimen is toxic. It requires very long hospital stays, longer for sickle cell patients than for others. I spoke to one American clinician a couple of weeks ago about all of this, and she runs one of the key sickle cell disease academic treatment centers in the US. It's in Birmingham, Alabama. 
she said right now, whether it's the treatment from Vertex Exocell or Bluebird Bio's Lovacell, which is a more classical gene therapy, and that's due mm-hmm. to be approved by December the 20th. Either one is the same process as required. And she reckons with some additional hires, she could do no more than about a dozen patients a year. In 2024-25, the whole system would probably be able to do 100 patients. This is where we are with these new therapies, right? They're, they're not something you can go to the medicine cabinet and take a oral tablet that's been sitting there for a few years and it addresses the situation, addresses the indication. These these therapies, like the CAR Ts we talked about last week, not all gene editing. I mean, Intellia, for example, has a, a systemically delivered gene editing product in phase one, phase two. And I'm glad that these first generation gene editing therapies are ex vivo. So the cells are taken out of the patient, they're engineered and then purified and checked before they're put back. But that's no mean feat. Again, it's not like going to the medicine cabinet and taking out an oral tablet. It's very expensive to do. And that's probably the one saving grace for Vertex in its discussions with NICE in the UK. Last time they got into twists of reimbursement and failure to get reimbursement for years with an oral drug therapy. Now they're doing something where if not properly addressed in a number of patients, that sickle cell disease can be fatal. And this offers potentially to be proven curative therapy, but it's not something that you're buying a tablet of. It's something you're buying a process and expertise. And so it's not cheap to do. So uh, what I'm saying is Vertex's potential window on pricing might be much higher than it would have been on cystic fibrosis. And at the same time, it doesn't matter even if they were being offered 10 million per patient, which isn't going to happen, but even if there were, physically, there is a very strict limit to how many patients can be treated with this. So when you look globally at the whatever number of million people have sickle cell disease alone, and most of them are in sub-Saharan Africa, around the southeastern rim of the Mediterranean, South Asia. And the fascinating thing, sadly and tragically, is that the reason why the sickle cell mutation is so prevalent globally is because it actually provides protection against malarial infection. Yeah. <laughs> which is a extraordinary irony. You know, if one thing doesn't kill you, this one will instead. Yeah. So that, that's but why... The, I mean, it's full of ironies yeah. though, isn't it? I mean, yeah, the, it the, the yeah. largest population or the largest group of people that should be eligible for this therapy can't afford to eat, let alone have yeah. a you know four, exactly. two or three million dollar... I spoke to um, a clinician, Michael DeBone, in, in Vanderbilt as well about this, and he's in Vanderbilt in Nashville, and he also does some work in Nigeria, and, and there, even getting hydroxyurea for patients mm. is, is a huge problem, uh, never mind this kind of stuff. He also, though, and it must be mentioned, he is an enthusiastic advocate of bone marrow transplant itself, unmodified, mm. not involving gene therapy. He, among others, are pioneering what they call a reduced intensity HLA, that's human leukocyte antigen, haploidentical, that's like partially matched or partially mismatched bone marrow treatment with post-transplant cyclophosphamide. And they are publishing data at the American Society of Hematology meeting shortly in December. They've attained on a phase two trial a two-year overall survival rate of 93%. And after transplant, that was for the entire number of participants in the trial. Not everybody actually underwent the transplant, but people who actually received the transplant, the two-year survival was 95%. Mm. And these are people with 
severe end organ toxicity mm. or stroke and pulmonary hypertension. Mm. And they're a population that's typically excluded from obtaining gene therapy or gene editing therapies. So they are reaching a very hard to treat patient population using this in-hospital kind of protocol. It's not a product as such. But bone marrow transplant obviously has been around for well over 50 years. And by tweaking it further, you can maybe achieve extraordinary outcomes without all the risks necessarily of gene therapy. And also, perfectly matched siblings are hard to get, especially mm-hmm. sickle cell disease. But partially matched is actually a much easier proposition. And this will be expensive as well, but probably less expensive than gene therapy or gene editing. It's yeah. maybe yeah. four or five hundred thousand bucks in the US. And interestingly enough, too, for UK listeners, there was a UK site involved in this study. And I think that the NHS as well is quite interested in this approach as well. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Cormac Sheridan acting as the fly on the wall for pricing discussions going on probably right now, not just in the UK, but in the US. Because, you know, payers will say, I've seen this study as well, because payers do read papers, right? Mm -hmm. And they will say that. Okay, so this is the end stage patient population, which a hemopathic stem cell transplant is being considered. We reimburse that, right? We know how much is that much costs for end stage patients. You're talking to patients that are not at end stage, although maybe one day, and you want us to pay you a million, two million, three million for something that costs us at the moment four hundred thousand or less, and in the UK even less, right? Because it's done under the US. Those are, and it would be a tragedy if for those patients who could be cured of this terrible condition if those discussions in the same way as Vertex had those discussions would do it nice, you know, aren't concluded and patients are denied therapy for longer than they should. And to me, it it surely is a question of both and it's not either or. And I think that this is Michael DeBone's point is not mine, but I, I think it's a point that's very well made. Discussions with patients about their options need to be wide ranging, transparent, honest and open and have their best interests at heart and patients will make different choices and now sometimes it's limited about your level of insurance coverage that awful awful limitation that affects too many patients by far but all things being equal some people may decide well i'm only 12 i'm only 15 years of age it's right now it's manageable I'm going to wait five years and see what happens. And there might be something better. I mean, okay, certainly Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics have really delivered extraordinarily interesting therapy in quick time. There are others behind them too. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be any better or not, but Editas is still there. Bluebird Bio is about to get a gene therapy approval. What I like about the gene editing approach, though, you transfer the gene editing components into the cell with electroporation. You're not actually... Viral vectors and I outside think the body, yeah, yeah, real plus. Beam Therapeutics finally got going with its first gene editing therapy. It's in phase one, two, and that could also be interesting. Potentially, it addresses some of the genotoxic kind of concerns associated with CRISPR nine based gene editing because there's no double strand DNA breaks made here. So, and I know that it feels have fallen by the way, wayside. Novartis and Intelia terminated their CRISPR Cas9 based therapy. Graphite Bio terminated another gene editing therapy. Aryavant as well exited a more classical gene therapy approach 
they had partnered with the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. That one's gone, apparently, I think. Or at least they've returned the IND to the hospital. So there is a pipeline. And, and I can, and I can see your point from the patient's yeah. perspective. You know, if, yeah. if you're a younger patient or yeah. you have one vaso-occlusive crisis a year or one every two years or something, you, know, you don't want another one. Mm. But, you know, if you're saying, you know, do I want to try this experimental therapy before I know everything else that comes along? On the other hand, you know, they may not get the chance because payers will say you only have one vaso-occlusive crisis every other year or something. And I'm sure the patient will be saying, well, you have one then for me. I know because this is it. I mean, it's a horrendous disease. And because as well in America, most patients are African-American people who've not necessarily always had a great relationship with the medical establishment for good reason. They're usually lower income, less access to healthcare, and very often they have diseases that are overlooked by the medical establishment or the pharmaceutical industry, maybe more to the point. So all of those things have to be taken on board too. But at the same time, I suppose we really should conclude the discussion, I suppose, with the sense of, you know, celebration and Mm. substantial levels of optimism tempered by everything that we've actually talked about too i mean that kind absolutely of yeah it, it is i mean as humans we've done well for those aliens again watching we are advancing yeah but we also need to get hydroxyurea at the very least out to patients all over the world it's just unconscionable in 2023 that that's not the case yeah yeah until the next time andy thank you cheers comment goodbye everyone